millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A global recession warning from the World Bank as consumer confidence falls here. Ministers are monitoring the warning signals. Of course, changes in the global economy can affect what happens here in Ireland. But in the last set of growth forecasts that we published for our economy, we acknowledged that growth could still slow down in our economy, but we still made the case that we can and will grow. And we will speak to Minister Donoghue tonight about those recession fears and the inflation crisis. Also on the programme, political pressure growing to reform America's controversial gun laws after the Texas school massacre. You work for gun manufacturers who pad your pockets and protect your power while over 110 Americans are shot and killed every day. And later, more revelations on the controversial politicians' day out at the races. Get in touch with us on Twitter with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight, let's go live to Avalde in Texas for the latest on the school massacre, which has left 19 young school children and two teachers dead. Police have been accused of responding too slowly to the gun attack, with the spotlight now on their response. US correspondent Tony Waterman is there for us tonight. And Tony, first, some heartbreaking news about the death of the husband of one of the teacher victims. What can you tell us? Yeah, this is absolutely, um, you know, unfathomable that one of these slain teachers, Irma Garcia, her husband, Joe Garcia, died this morning. He had gone over to her memorial. He came back from that memorial and he collapsed and died from an apparent heart attack. That is according to uh, their nephew who made a tweet about this, saying that he believes that Joe Garcia died from absolute grief. These were, this was a couple that were high school sweethearts. They had been married for 24 years. They have four children together, two daughters, two sons. They're all aged between 13 and 23, now having to plan the funerals for not one parent, but for two parents. And that teacher, Irma Garcia, along with uh, the other teacher in that fourth grade classroom, Eva Morales, they died protecting those students from those bullets. And Tony, lots of anger there today at the scene as well with a spotlight on the police response. What are locals saying? Yeah, so we now know that it took police more than an hour to bring this gunman down, even though they had arrived at the scene just five minutes after that initial call. So the big question right now is, why did it take so long? They did encounter some initial gunfire from the suspect, uh, but then when he had barricaded himself inside of the classroom, we were told today in a press conference that the vast majority of the bullets, numerous rounds, according to the regional director of the Texas Department of Safety, were actually fired 
in the initial moments of that hours long episode. So there's a lot of focus right now on why police did not just barge into that room as soon as the gunfire stopped. We are also having uh, we're also seeing the emergence of this heart wrenching video from parents who were outside at this time urging police pleading with police to, to storm that building. Some of them saying one father who lost a daughter in this tragic shooting saying that he was going to go in by himself with other people in the crowd because they were so frustrated that the police apparently were doing nothing. Officials said that they did as much as they could. They ended the situation as quickly as possible. And don't forget, this is a very small town. So when they call in reinforcements, those reinforcements are coming from a good hour's drive away. Uh, we got the reaction about gun law reform in the immediate aftermath of this shooting. It's very much where the political focus now lies, isn't it, Tony? What's being said? As in the aftermath of all of these mass shootings, there is a, a talk about what goes on with gun laws. There is some hope, at least, that this might make a difference. There was a bipartisan meeting between eight senators uh, earlier today. They were talking about a potential compromise on gun reform, perhaps something that would extend universal background checks to include people who buy guns at gun shows or online. This is something that the vast majority of Americans get behind. They want to see this happen. Also talk of extending uh, the so-called red flag. So this is when law enforcement goes in and takes a firearm away from somebody that has been deemed a threat. They cannot agree on that right now. There is hope that they will. The um, Republican leader Mitch McConnell signaled today uh, to CNN that he is showing support for this. So we're going to have to really see in the coming days if there can be any headway, however small it may be, on U.S. gun regulation. And Tony, news tonight that President Biden uh, is likely to visit the scene this weekend. He is going to be here in Uvalde on Sunday. He's going to be accompanied by the First Lady, Jill Biden, and they are going to be trying to comfort these families. It was just 10 days ago that they were both in Buffalo, New York, after a mass shooting there at a grocery store that left 10 African-Americans dead. This is something that Joe Biden has said he never wanted to have to do as president. But he is a person who knows tragedy. He has also lost not one child, but two children. He lost a daughter in a car accident many decades ago. And then in just the past couple of years, he lost a son to brain cancer. So he really can emphasize with what these families are going through. And just the other night, he said, you know, when you lose a child, it's like a piece of your soul has been ripped out of you. Okay, Tony Waterman joining us from Uvalde, Texas. Thank you for that update tonight. Well, in other news, Hollywood star Kevin Spacey has been charged with four counts of sexual assault against three men in the UK. The charges relate to two alleged incidents in London in 2005, another in 2008 and another in 2013. London's Met Police said the alleged victims are now in their 30s and 40s. Spacey has won two Academy Awards for his roles in The Usual Suspects and American Beauty. He's also starred in the Netflix political series House of Cards. The UK government has announced additional measures to help with the cost of living crisis there. Eight million low-income families will get a one-off payment of £650 sterling. A temporary windfall tax on oil and gas giants will fund the payments. The total package is worth €15 billion Euro, uh, sterling rather, and aimed at offsetting inflation, which is at its highest in almost 40 years. Well, I'm joined in the studio tonight by the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, Minister. You're very welcome along to the programme. 
on that story and we're hearing the suite of measures that have been announced in the UK, an emergency budget if you like, um, an energy windfall tax specifically. Is this something that we would look at here? Is this something you're considering? Well, we always keep all measures under review, but we have a very different environment here in Ireland for the supply of energy. Many of the companies that are central to the supply of energy in our country um, are actually uh, uh, semi-state organisations who already return dividends to our state, uh, where we put additional taxes on them. Two things could happen. They could either have to then pay a lower dividend to the state that we receive every year, or it could affect the plans that they have to invest in renewable energy. We're also a very small economy, and uh, pretending that we're in a position to tax other companies that supply energy to us, that may be international, could also have consequences for the price of energy that we can then access. Yeah, I'm asking, Minister, because the ESB made a record 679 million euro in operating mm -hmm. profits last year. Is it a case then, if they are semi-state, that you take a larger dividend from them? Uh, well, we take a dividend from them each year and we have what's called a dividend policy where we decide as we approach the budget what is the dividend then that we take from companies like ESB. But the thing about that profit is that in turn then is funding billions of euros of investment that ESB are making in our country. Uh, so much of what is at the heart of our competitiveness in the supply of energy and our energy security comes from ESB yes. investment. So there's no point pretending here that there's a kind of, I'm not going to pretend to you or your viewers, that there's a pot of gold in the ESB that I can take by a higher tax, that it is not going to affect then things they do that really matter to the future of our country How, and I, our energy I'm wondering when you say that the US has done it, Spain and Italy have already imposed such a tax. We've heard news then from Britain today and the money that they're taking in is going into the pockets of struggling um, home, homeowners, struggling bill payers who are really struggling at this time. There's many people who will be watching here tonight who are saying 670 million euro, can you not take a little bit more and give it back to us? Uh, ESB return money to the Irish state every year. Do the they money, return enough is the, the money question when that they're is making left, these record the money then is The money that is then left, they use to invest in the things that are vital to our energy supply today. And of course, the common factor that the other countries that you mentioned there have in common is many of them are, of course, an awful lot bigger than in Ireland. And in many cases, they don't have the big semi-state infrastructure that we have here in Ireland. What about then, you know, the standing charge increases that came along? A lot of people were really annoyed by that. They were saying, OK, look, there's an issue. We know um, cost of living, inflationary sure. rises. There's a war in Ukraine. This is all impacting on energy costs. Yeah. But to increase standing charges on top of everything else, people felt, you know, that's, that's taking advantage, to put it mildly. Well, this is one of the reasons then uh, that in recognising that there are many things going on that do influence the cost of living, that we then made the decision to reduce VAT and gas and electricity. Um, we did that because we're able to influence what is the tax in relation to those kinds of energies. And we did that to try to make a contribution to those forms of energy being less expensive for people. And if you look at, for example, where we are versus the UK, we've reduced VAT and many forms of energy. They haven't. 
we've reduced excise by far more than them. That's the choice they haven't made. And we have put in place additional benefit payments that have been in place since the start of the year that they're only beginning. Just, just to ask you on that, just finally on, on the, the, the windfall tax, it's something that was under consideration when you were asked about it back in April. Are you ruling it out? I'm going to say to you in April what I... What I I'm going to say to you now, excuse me, what I said to you in April, what I said in April. In April, what I said is that we have to keep all measures under review. But I said in April what I've just said now. What is really different about the concept of a windfall tax is that it would affect organisations that already pay us money every year through a dividend who are using the profits they have okay. to invest in what we will need for our energy security and independence. Okay, um, an emergency budget. Are you categorically ruling that out here? Are we going to see nothing um, between now and Budget 2023? There's going to be no budget beyond the budget that I will be doing in October with Minister Michael McGrath. We've already made uh, three rounds of interventions to support households that we know are under huge pressure uh, in, in all cases, for in many cases, for things that are beyond the control uh, of, our, of our country. Between what we did on Budget Day last year and the three interventions that we've made this year on VAT and excise on the electricity credit that many are receiving at the moment, that's 2.4 billion euro of your money that we're spending to help today. Yeah, and you're saying all that and, and those measures were announced and they were welcomed. But then, you know, we have this cost of living crisis, which means such things like the energy credit, I mean, it's, it's wiped out. And for people viewing tonight who are really struggling at the moment, and we've heard calls from people supporting them, from Coalition for the Elderly, from other groups saying they're yeah. protesting, they're protesting outside Leinster House, yeah. and they want you to do more, Minister. What well, do you I, say to them? So I fully appreciate why so many want me to do some more, but what do I say to them? Firstly, I will point to what we have done so far. Secondly, I would make the case that not so long ago, indeed for over two years, I was here in your studio facing calls to do more and more economically to deal with the consequences of COVID. And over that two-year period, I had to make the point that we have to get the balance right between helping today and not creating big problems for us tomorrow, next month, next year. And we did that during the era of COVID, which offered help. And when we emerged from that crisis, we were in a position to recover and get going again. And while it's really difficult, and I know it's difficult to make the case for this, we have a national debt of 232 billion euro. There's no point me borrowing now to help with new measures today that we have to repay back tomorrow. Yeah. That's People using the country's no, credit borrowing, card. Um, all that borrowing was done uh, uh, hugely during the pandemic, during the COVID period. Yeah. No one complained about it. It was needed. It had to be done. People say, why aren't you doing it now? Because the global interest rate environment has fundamentally changed. When we were doing it over the last two years, the interest rate in Ireland's borrowing was around zero or less than zero. Since the start of January, it's now gone up to 1.6%. And while it is going up in line with what is happening in other countries, it is still going up. And even when though during that point of COVID, again, I was facing the challenge and facing the question many times, is that debt sustainable? Can we afford it? I remember being asked, is austerity coming back because of the level of borrowing we were doing then? And I made the case then, which I make it tonight, which I know is really hard given the challenges that many are facing. But as a Minister for Finance with responsibility for our borrowing and the safety of our country's economy, it's about trying to help enough to make a difference without creating oh. problems that we'll suffer from tomorrow. Let's talk about the ECB rate rise that's coming down the tracks. There are reports it's likely to be aggressive. Four quarter point rises 
this year alone. That could be affecting people who are paying mortgages to the tune of €400 Euro per month. What's your message to, to mortgage holders who are already saying, we are squeezed every which way right now? Well, that report is very different to the guidance the, the ECB are giving regarding what they're going to do in 2022. The ECB are very much aware um, about the need to act independently, to deal with inflation, to try to get it down. But they also do appreciate the risk of changing interest rates in such a way that it has a really, really adverse effect on the ability of our economy to grow. What I say to those, all that being said, who are worried about uh, the rising cost of borrowing, what it would mean on a mortgage, is again, this feeds back to why we are trying to help with the measures that we are bringing in. What are you in saying to people and the on measures that? that we are you put saying in place to people, fix your mortgage sorry, sorry, now? Claire, Claire, sorry, you asked me a question, just let me conclude. And of course, it's going to feed into what we will do in Budget 2023, when again, we will, across the year, try to put measures in place to help with a cost of living we know is increasing. Okay, so but but on 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 mortgages on mortgages and for people who who w may face this increase of up to yeah. four hundred euro per month on a variable rate mortgage, are you saying fix now, do something about it yourself? Is that the message, uh, or do you think you know we are paying the highest in among the highest in the eurozone on our mortgage repayments as it is? That that, that that's the truth of it. Um, interest rates are, are, mm. are very high here. Should there be more government intervention in this matter? Well, so if you look at interest rates, they've come down on a new debt. They've come down from an average of around 4% uh, percent to around 2.7-2.8%. So they have come down. And the reason why interest rates are still high here in Ireland versus other EU countries is firstly, we had a huge banking crisis that affects how our banks are regulated and how much capital they hold. And we also uh, have in place a high degree of protection for uh, people who could uh, face difficulty regarding repaying debt in the future that affects the interest rate on those loans. So if you're looking for, for more government intervention or making the case in relation to it, again, it comes back to the balance that I have to strike between helping today and be conscious that we have a huge debt and the need to manage it. But again, um, because of the decisions that we've made in the past, we are in a position how we can help. We've done it this year, and as we move through next year, if and when the resources are there, we'll do our best to do it again. Okay, so in the meantime, uh, br brace yourselves on, on that one. Um, Ulster Bank and KBC, you mentioned the banks there. They are closing, they're exiting the market. Right. Uh, we've had the Financial Services Union urging the central bank to order those banks to extend their timelines for leaving the market. And would you agree with that? Do you think those extensions should be in place? But that's a matter for the central bank to make a decision on. I mean, we have what to have... What do you think about that? You no, know, we have... I mentioned the global financial banking crisis there a while ago. One of the things we learned from that is there's some things that have to be left to regulators to do as opposed to politicians. The central bank and a number of uh, statements they've made publicly are well aware of the risk to consumers and bank account holders if the orderly exit from K of KBC and uh, uh, Ulster Bank doesn't happen. Does this sound like it's orderly right now? What's happening? Oh, I think the degree of change that we're facing at the moment, for many at the moment, does not feel orderly. But this is why, for example, this week alone, uh, the central bank have been meeting with banks who were receiving accounts, such as AIB and Bank of Ireland and Permanent TSB, and they also continue to engage with permanent with Ulster Bank yeah. and with NatWest uh, and KBC to ensure they are playing their part in facilitating the switch over it's of just, accounts. It's just funny, isn't it? Because it is a major shift. We're seeing the closure 
of two banks and there's a lot of people with their money in those banks at the moment. And, you know, we wouldn't really know about it if it wasn't for the media reporting on it or reporting difficulties that people are facing with the switch up and, and, and the, the, the fact that it's, it's not so seamless um, for plenty of people right now. Why isn't there a campaign? Should there be something from government on that? Should there be some, something more coming from Central Bank on these changes that are going to affect people? But the Central Bank and I have been talking about this now for some while. But there's nothing I, on the I radio. Only... You're not hearing it anywhere. Like well, You have other banks like Bank of Ireland saying, come to us, we'll you know, bring your business to us. But there's nothing coming from those two specific banks that people are having trouble um, dealing with at the moment because they can't get through to them to, to organise their accounts, to move well, and move all their... Um, you know, financial um, financial dealings. Well, just because the media aren't reporting it doesn't mean it's not been said. I mean, last Monday uh, I gave a no, speech. We are, we, we are last reporting Monday it. I gave a speech in Carlo uh, to uh, uh, all of the stakeholders in retail banking, making clear uh, that everybody has a part to play in this transition. And I've been saying it directly to the banks now for some while. And in fairness uh, to the media and their coverage of it here. Um, you know, they have been making clear the amount of change that could happen here. And the central bank now for some time um, have been engaging with the banks that are here and going to make clear that this is a transition that has to happen in a careful way. But Claire, I do you know, take your point here. This is a huge amount of change. There are hundreds of thousands of accounts that are going to be changing. Lots of work that needs to be done across here and the coming months and the banks have to play their part in it, and the central bank, and of course I, will do all we can uh, to try to facilitate this being done in an orderly way. OK, but, but you're not going to suggest about um, timelines for leaving the Irish market right now. That's something that's up to the central bank to decide. Well, it's up to two parties. It's actually up to the banks who are deciding to go. So these are two very large global banks. They have decided to go. If it was within my uh, gift or control to stop that, then of course I would. Of course I'd want to influence it. But these are two banks that are not owned here in Ireland that are global. They are deciding to go. And once they make that decision, uh, then it's up to the central bank and the government to help influence and regulate it. If we were the kind of country that said, uh, if you come to Ireland, you can't go, okay. it'd be an awful lot harder to get companies to come to Ireland in the first All right. place. Um, let me ask you about a story reported by Craig Hughes in the Irish Daily Mail today of how senators and deputies from Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil were guests at a race day event in Punchestown that was hosted by the gambling sector at a time when efforts are being made to rein in this sector and to regulate gambling in this country. Would you have accepted that invite? Um, I wouldn't have. And the reason why I wouldn't have is, as Minister for Finance, I have responsibility for the taxation of the sector. I have a particular responsibility for the sector in terms of how they're taxed. I have changed the taxation regime in relation to the sector uh, through budget day measures. I do meet them. I do engage with them. Um, would you go for? You wouldn't go for a day at the races. Uh, I wouldn't for the reason I've just said there. But what I'm, about? So I'm, what do you I'm, think of, of your Finnegan colleagues for them. going? But there, there, and, there is and a difference. There is going. a difference between being, you know, minister for finance who's responsible for the taxation of the sector and then um, uh, being a TD or a senator who isn't, so who is interested in the sector, I mean, who is interested in the, the sector. And of course, they're there to hear uh, what the sector has to say. But this is why we have lobbying legislation. Uh, it is correct to ask about how influence and advocacy happens with politicians, between uh, you know, companies, between sectors and with politicians. Really legitimate question 
question about understanding regulation. That's why we have a, reg a, a lobbyist register, and that is why we have regulation that says that if you lobby a politician, it has to be registered and it has to be made public. And that's what, what I would expect okay. the association With who are hosting this, the event we, to we, do. And we did hear the Thornister saying, you know, no, no ethics were breached and, and there was no codes or rules broken in this instance. But the optics of it doesn't look good, does it? But, it, it, you know, these are politicians who are clearly interested in the sector. If you look at the horse-facing sector overall, uh, which is where the event happened, it is a valuable part of our economy. And again, this is why we have legislation in place to regulate this kind of engagement. Uh, this uh, uh, interaction should be and will be registered and will be at that point made public. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Minister Pascal Donoghue, thank you thank for you joining very much, us Claire. in studio tonight. Uh, my thanks to the Minister. Next, reaction to that interview from Sinn Féin and our panel of journalists. So stay with us. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. I'm joined by Sinn Féin TD Rose Conway Walsh, Irish Daily Mail political correspondent Craig Hughes, journalist and broadcaster Valerie Cox, and newspaper paper columnist Ian O'Doherty. You're all very welcome along. Uh, welcome to my panel tonight. Um, Rose, to come to you first, we had the Minister in the first part of the programme. Um, he was ruling out an emergency budget, uh, any budget taking place between now and October. And also any changes or introducing a windfall tax on, on energy providers here. What did you make of what he had to say? Well, it's hugely disappointing. It's disappointing for me and it's disappointing for Sinn Féin, but it's particularly disappointing for the families who are watching in on this tonight. I mean, he was talking about um, 2022 and 23. People don't know what they can afford next week. People, I don't think that the government get it. I think they're really out of touch. And I think even in terms of his demeanour tonight, he really doesn't get the scale of the problem, the problem that's there and people being able to afford, just being able to afford to live. And he talks about the finances and being responsible about it. But, you know, the fact is that when the projections were made on the budget that was made, uh, inflation was projected to be 2.2%. And we know what it is now, 7 8% going on that and scheduled to get worse. We also know in terms of the public finances, the deficit uh, that was predicted at the time were 9.4 billion in, mm. more favourable than that. We also have a discretionary COVID fund 
that was put aside in the budget last year as well of two and a half billion. So there are many things that can be done and there's much room to manoeuvre there. You're saying the money's we there. Need to, yeah, we need to get that money into people's pockets to help them to survive this, to get over it. Valerie, what do you think the cost of living is the big yeah. issue that's that's dominating here? Everyone is feeling yeah. it in their pockets, but you know, it's, it's more so um, people, for, for the poorest and for, for the most vulnerable, they yes. feel it the most because everything is more expensive for You're them. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I do think these are the people that we should be looking at now. I know we got 200, everybody got 200 for electricity a few months ago, but, you know, it's going way beyond that now. And some of the most vulnerable are the older people in society. And an awful lot of older people these days are actually trying to pay a mortgage as well. And there's so many expenses. Like, it's not as though just electricity has gone up. There's such a knock-on effect with food and everything else. And I think we need something dramatic to happen from the government. I will be very disappointed if something dramatic doesn't happen because I think at the moment people are just being screwed. Well, Pascal Donoghue has said now nothing between now and October. What do you, Pascal what Donoghue are you is wrong. I think Pascal Donoghue is almost risking, well, he's risking the government's reputation, he's risking his own position. I think he needs, this is the time when our politicians have to come up with something imaginative, something innovative. Yes, we're going to have to borrow money to do it. But I mean, look at the UK situation where they've announced a number of packages today and they're going to have to borrow billions for it. You could uh, say the timing around that was also very well, convenient, yes, indeed, Valerie. Indeed. Um, but look, let's talk about the other story um, that's been making headlines today. Uh, Craig Hughes, I want to come to you because this is your story. We were asking the minister about it, um, putting the question to him about the number of TDs and senators from Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil at this uh, race day event at Punchestown. Um, we've heard also the defence from government today uh, on this. What do you make of it? I think the defence to brush this story away is quite interesting because let's do a very simple test, you know. Um, did the public know about this? No. Did, did the politicians want it to come out? No. So that straight away you've, you've, got, you've got a story there and one of, of significant public interest because it raises wider questions about what we know about how our politicians um, interact with corporations. I mean, I personally didn't know that our politicians were regularly being, being taken to, to drinks events by, by gambling companies who for a long time have been left unregulated. I mean, they were more than a decade after the initial regulation was promised. So this is a very powerful lobby group. It isn't just any lobby group. So I just thought it was very interesting that um, they were eager to say there's nothing to see here. Um, and then the minister saying, well, he himself wouldn't have gone because he would have, you know, he, he, he's in the financial arena and it's directly his brief, if you like. But um, yeah. in a way, you know, letting the others off, off the hook. But also, the government keen to state, and we heard from the Thornister today, no ethical... Um, codes were breached, no rules were broken. Yeah, but TDs also have a role. They're going to have to vote through this legislation. You know, their colleagues are making recommendations at the Justice Committee, for example. So to say, to say that TDs and senators don't have a role, I think actually does a discredit to the rest of the Oireachtas. Um, what do you make of it, Rose? Would you have, have attended that day at the races? I didn't get an invite. I didn't get an invite. And if you did anyway, get an invite, is it something that you would think twice about? Would you, would you like to attend something like Not that? Not at all, you wouldn't. If you wanted to go to the races, you'd go and you'd pay your own way. You wouldn't be dependent on a, on a lobbying group and on the betting industry to, to, to bring you there and to pay for you there. Are you I familiar think with days out of, like that? Uh, well, I am from, from 
previous life, but uh, of course people have been to the races. Yeah, but, but for I think politicians we... being asked by groups such as um, the Irish Bookmakers Association well, to come really. along I'm for not a day sure the races. How, yeah, I'm not sure how politicians are selected to be invited, but I do think there's a very, very serious um, questions to be asked here in terms of the legislation. And as Craig says rightly, we are all legislators. We have a mandate to legislate and that's what we're supposed to do, not to be impacted by lobby groups. And when you have gambling addictions and the lives that have been destroyed across this country with gambling addiction and we're waiting 10 years for legislation, there's really serious questions to be answered here. Now, now on this story, we did ask uh, the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael press offices for their reaction to this. Fianna Fáil had no comment at this time and uh, there was no response from Fine Gael on it. Um, so silence on that front. But we did hear, we did hear uh, Minister Pascal Donoghue um, on it and uh, Leo Radker earlier. But on this one, Valerie Cox, like, and it was the defence from the Thornish that we heard today. You know, lobbying goes, goes on, yeah. it, it, it's part of it. You know, we go to events hosted by banks, what we regulate the banks, but that's okay. That's, that's what happens. Well, you know, it, times have changed a lot. There was a time when journalists went to a lot of hospitality um, events. We, journalists don't do that anymore. You might go to certain events to get the story, but you're certainly not going there to enjoy yourselves. And I mean, I just think the Cray story oh, is a terrific do, story. Well, do. I don't think they do, but anyway. This is a huge conflict of interest. I mean, when um, government, uh, when TDs, senators, when they have to declare um, their interests in, when, they, when they're initially elected, and then they go off and they do something like this. You know, this means they are interested in a free day out with um, the gambling organisation. Mm. It's so wrong, so basically wrong. It really is. Uh, Ian, do you think kind of the soft influence comes in here that, yes, there's no specific lobby group over talking to them saying, you know, don't crack down on us, please. But then when it comes to the decision-making, they think of that nice day out. No, it's, 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 it's the Irish culture of, ah, they're grand lads and they've had a good day out with each other. And journalists still go down. I've never, um, I've turned down numerous invitations from gambling companies to go on press day outs where basically you're fed and you're watered and you know, you're given a couple of quid to have a bet and all that. Um, I'm in the unusual position that I don't like horse racing. I don't, can't stand horse racing. Uh, I can't stand gambling. I genuinely think gambling now, at this moment in time, is a bigger scourge in this country than drugs. For the simple reason, and I've seen it myself, for the simple reason that somebody now, you don't even have to go into the bookies anymore. You just go onto your phone, you go onto an app, and before you know it, you've lost next month's mortgage. And I've seen it happen to people, right? It's a terrible, terrible scourge. And even me as a journalist, and I've never felt ethically comfortable going down for a day in Punchestown or Leopardstown or whatever, I just don't want to do it. Um, for any of those politicians to not have that cross mm. their mind or to not have one of the advisors go, maybe this isn't a great idea. And the reason why Craig's story is such a good story is because you always know it's a good story when the politicians don't want it to come out. And that's why, well done. <laughs> From one hack to another, well done. And listen, on this story, Craig, uh, it, it rolls on. Uh, tell us what you're running with. What's the splash tomorrow? I think we can bring up the front page of tomorrow's Daily Mail. Uh, VIP tent ban for gambling companies. Tell us more. 
Um, yes, yeah, so this is from an interview I did with, um, for tomorrow's paper with Minister of State um, James Brown, who's responsible for, for gambling regulation. Um, so the new legislation that's coming forward will ban all VIP privileges, so that's free bars, um, but across everything. But he confirmed to me that this will apply to events like the politicians attended. So this will be the last Punchestown where you'll see politicians being wined and dined in, in a luxury tent. OK, so despite all the defence of this, it seems it's coming to an end anyway. Yes, so they're going to have to vote through <laughs> to ban this themselves. <laughs> right, that thing. vote should be interesting. Uh, I just want to move to a different story and one that grabbed a few headlines for a uh, particularly uh, interesting video. I think we can take a look now at uh, TD Emer Higgins and what she had to say about the passport debacle. Hi, I am really pleased to say that following months long of campaigning and all of the media attention today, that I'm post contacting me earlier to confirm that they are indeed going to change um, the name Passport Express um, to, to show that it's not the quickest way of getting your passport. Um, the advice is always apply online and apply early. There's going to be a new name for uh, Passport Express to reflect the fact that it isn't an express service. Um, thanks to Minister Simon Coveney who supported me on this, um, who I think is making the announcement formally later on today. Okay, so that's uh, the big win for government on that. We're changing the name from Passport Express um, to Post Passport. Um, Ironically, what it's doing is highlighting the failure of the system, isn't it, Rose? Absolutely. I mean, that's tone deaf. And again, it shows such a disconnect between what's happening in people's lives. There's thousands of people all over the country waiting for passports. People absolutely desperate, whether it be kids going on school tours or parents looking for passports for their children. The whole system isn't functioning, isn't functioning properly. Now, I do want to commend the staff in the passport office because they do their best and they have to take so much slack for this. But the resources aren't there. Like we're recruiting at the moment. We have some clerical officers there starting there next Monday. This is all too late. It was predicted that passports because of Brexit and because of COVID, that there would be huge demand on passport offices. We have the demand, of course, in the north as well because of Brexit. We still don't have the passport office in Belfast. So all of that together, I mean, to come out then and make a statement like that is, we discussed it in the Dáil today, practical things that can be done yeah. to speed up the process. And again, I think the government is saying, look, we are uh, looking at doing uh, those practical, uh, taking those practical measures, but all the same, it's, it's again the optics around this one, Craig. Well, well, I think some of the commentary on this has been a bit unfair, to be honest. I mean, if we talk about the resources of government TDs, I mean, look, there's lots of other government TDs who spend their day just putting in requests for updates on, on the statuses of passports. So you could say at least that Deputy Higgins has done something proactive. Yeah, you know? and Emer and uh, may say it's good news because, uh, you know, maybe what was in place there wasn't revealing the full truth. And uh, in terms of branding, she's put it right. So in her uh, defence on that one, which she might say if she was on the show. Well, my thanks to Rose Conroy-Walsh and Craig Hughes. Valerie and Ian are staying on with me next. More of the big stories of the week, including ABBA reunited tonight in London on the eve of their Avatar digital concerts. Welcome back, Ian and Valerie are still here with me and I'm also joined by Deirdre Mortel, CEO of Rethink Ireland. Deirdre, you're welcome to the programme. Um, let's look at the big stories of the week. We'll have to start with what we 
start of the program on, and that's the, the devastating school shooting in America, in Texas, in, in the town of Uvalde. 19 school children dead and two of their teachers. Um, you know, as we were saying yesterday, the legislators have said enough is enough, and yet this happens again, you know, Darcy. It's very hard, I think, on this side of the Atlantic for us to make sense of this, how this happens, and with such regularity. Well, it's the old line that, um, you know, the, the Americans and the English, they're just two countries divided by the same language because culturally um, they're very different to us um, in Europe. Um, contrary to an awful lot of the coverage that we've had over the last few days, I mean, it was horrible, it was absolutely barbarous, and the bit that I can't get out of my head was that he told an eight-year-old girl, you're going to die. There's always one line from all of these atrocities, and it's not a tragedy, because a tragedy is something that's unavoidable. Um, this is an atrocity. Um, that line has just stuck with me, and it will stay with me for a long time. But we need to understand that for an awful lot of Americans, the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, is a fundamental and intrinsic part of their identity. It's a fundamental and intrinsic part of their quest for individual liberty and for freedom and for independence from the government. Um, and if you really want to see a civil war break out in America, go after their guns, because that will be the one. And the thing is, they're better armed. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is, though, Valeria, and we, we heard this in the, in the, the outrage in the mm. immediate aftermath of this about tighten up those gun laws. Apparently, it's something that 90% of Americans would like to see. They'd be in favour of that. But then yes. you've got the gun lobby. But, you know, you have the gun lobby, and tomorrow we actually have the National Rifle Association having their annual congress. And interestingly enough, they've brought in a rule for tomorrow that nobody can carry a gun. And the chief speaker there tomorrow is going to be Donald Trump. Now, when we're having um, a large organisation like that holding public meetings in the face of what happened this week, I really don't know what hope there is. But what I really think is appalling in the, in the States is the fact that the responsibility is being put on the victims of these outrages. For example, in schools right across the, the US, we're teaching children where to hide in the school, where the safest places are, dive under your desk. This should not That's be the responsibility cover, of... That goes back I to don't the know, I'm just saying it shouldn't be the responsibility of little children. No, it should be the responsibility of taking the guns and what, away. And what, it, what it serves to do in a most chilling way is normalise what happens, as if this was like a fire drill. Absolutely. Um, it, that's really so utterly shocking. Um, Deirdre, on this one, you know, uh, from the mental health point of view, immediately what, what gun proponents came out and said, you know, talk of a madman, a monster, is it problematic in using this language to talk away what's happened? I think that kind of language is deeply unhelpful. Um, and I think what we hear classically in tragic moments like this is about how the two sides, we have the victims and the perpetrator. But I think what we see in common there is uh, what is going on in relation to mental health and with an 18-year-old perpetrator, in particular youth mental health. So what it says to me is we have 19 traumatised children, a traumatised school community and, and uh, you know, a neighbourhood and arguably a nation. Um, but if I think about, well, what should we be thinking about here in Ireland where we don't have school shootings, I think about a, a youth mental health crisis that we have going on. Mm. So, for example, we, we have uh, children bereaved by murder, suicide and violent death every day of the year. So 
how are we thinking about their youth mental health? And we know that trauma has lifelong consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, so for us, uh, for me at Rethink Ireland, it makes me think, okay, what do we need to do uh, in similar situations? What do we need to do here? And is it time to act to build our youth mental health services? So we're taking action at Rethink Ireland actually about that and we're raising a three million euro fund to do that. Uh, because and, we and believe those, that those it can be prevented. trauma services are so critically important. Um, I want to talk about the other story um, that's actually been dominating, obviously, in the UK for um, many weeks and months, and that's Partygate, uh, the hangover. It was the report came in talking about wine on the walls, talking about vomit, talking about a fight taking place, and senior leadership being complicit with this culture. But Boris Johnson, it appears thinks at least that he's got away with it, Ian. Yeah, well, I, I actually thought the Sue Gray report was actually pretty much of a nothing burger. Um, and I do think most people don't really care. They have more important things in their mind. Don't and care I think, here, don't care there. I, I don't, over there, they don't care. Over here, people don't really care either. I mean, we've, we all have better reasons to dislike Boris Johnson than the fact that he turned up and didn't take a bit of birthday cake uh, for this infamous party. And, but what I would but say... I do is... think it's, it's interesting that you say that because there's been a whole outpouring of people saying, you know, on that very day, he was having a drink. I couldn't uh, go back to my dad's house after my mother's yeah, funeral. Yeah, you know, people... You know, horrendous people, people, were, people were annoyed, yeah. obviously, but I mean, that was a fairly transient kind of annoyance. Now, people are smarter than the media give them credit for. And people realise that we have the... The cost of living crisis. We have Ukraine. We have the energy crisis coming up. Um, and one thing I would say is that Boris Johnson is the luckiest general I have ever seen. If he had faced a decent opposition, um, in other words, not Jeremy Corbyn and not Keir Starmer, he would have been in serious trouble. But he is the best or the least bad option. And people realise that he came in with an 80 seat majority. Don't forget. Yeah, I mean that, that's one of the reasons they say he's so safe is that he wins them seats regardless, Valerie. Um, yeah. But, I mean, it does hugely erode trust. Absolutely. And 59% think he should go. I mean, that's a huge number. And he says, no, no, I'll get on with the job. Now, I think this, in this situation, in this crisis, I think we need to look at what we really expect from our politicians. Do we expect them to get on with the job or do we expect them to give good example and to obey their own laws? Now, we're quite used to politicians resigning here in the last few years or certainly taking a step down maybe from being a minister to becoming a TD. But I think at the moment, um, Boris Johnson is he's just sitting there and hoping it'll go away. And I don't think it's going to. I think it's gathering momentum now since the Sue Gray report came out. And people have realised I made all these sacrifices. You know, as you say, I didn't go back to the house after the funeral. I didn't visit my mother who was dying in a nursing home. And there has to be a big element of anger there. And when it comes to the polling day, which is the only thing that counts, opinion polls don't matter a goddamn. When it comes to polling day, I don't think he's going to carry an 80-seat majority, mm. but I don't think he's going to go below a 50-seat majority because people vote with their pockets and they will vote for the least bad option. And he, he, he has got away with this. And it's the fact that Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner have proven themselves, and they've been called out as being liars, for the beer and biryani party yeah. that they had Is it on the same scale, though? Not, no. Not, not, of course it is. Not Absolutely. so sure. Although Absolutely. if they're called out if, over that, no, because then, if, then if, Boris's if, position if is he, definitely... Um, 
on, on the ropes. Don't pitch if you can't catch. And they were pitching right. at Johnson and now they have to catch it. Let's talk about um, summer festivals. They're all coming back after um, two years off and drugs again coming to the fore here. The HSE um, launching a campaign to, to, to tell the kids not to take them. Deirdre? That's right, and every parent in Ireland will be supporting uh, that message and young people will be saying, well, maybe I'm not going to tell you what I really do in my private life. Um, I think what we need to think about here is that so many, why do young people take drugs? And sure, some of them take for fun, but I think we know that an awful lot of young people are really taking drugs mm -hmm. to self-medicate, to deal with anxiety, uh, you know, social phobias or everything else. So. We need to look at why young people take drugs, not just what they do. Okay, I just want to finally get to um, the ABBA Avatar concerts that are taking place. Um, what do you think of it? Look, it's a strange one, ABBA. isn't it? I mean, the first time round, they won the Eurovision the year I got married. It was practically the song of my wedding, you know? I love ABBA. Um, and I, I mean, I've gone to everything. And just from, it's coming back in a kind of digital space where they're like holograms on yeah. screen performing. It's bizarre, but actually it's managing to make them an awful lot of money, even though they're not there in reality. It is bizarre. And I, to be honest, I don't think I'd go. And I imagine the tickets are very expensive anyway. Um, it's an interesting idea. And maybe it's a way for younger people to see them as they were when we were young. You need some good. of the drugs that you take at festivals probably oh. to go, to go <laughs> on and, and properly enjoy that one. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I think it's wonderful to see people who were young people who made it when they were young coming back as older people and saying we're still here and we're doing it our way. I oh. love it. Crack and band. Who can, no, nobody can give out of it. Good night to finish it. on. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also find us on Instagram tonight VMTV. From all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.